When I show up, I always, of course, thank you because we, you really are our only church, the only church that has ever supported us and, and individuals in this church as well. And we couldn't do it without you. Even as the church gains support, um, all they do is take on what Village Missions, the minimum that Village Missions has taken on. And so as any mission field, it gets harder because the longer you stay, the more you're uh, support drops, so we certainly appreciate that, appreciate your prayers, and we feel like we have a partner here. And normally what I say is, this church also has two other uh, families that extend from this that do ministry in the same area, but since the last time I was here, um, Travis and Missy, uh, they left to go to, they're still in the state of New York, um, but they're at a uh, uh, different um, church, uh, which is probably about an hour and a half away. And then Sean and Jen went even further, as you know, to uh, New Orleans. And just to get one last dig in, they asked us if we wanted their winter clothes. Uh, so I hope it's going poorly for them down there. But we, we really do appreciate you guys. Can't see. They do have big bugs, yeah. I, I, honestly, I take big bugs in their weather over what we have. We we live, Ithaca is well known for their wineries. Just uh, it, uh, It's amazing how many wineries are in our area. And it's because of the weather. They call us the mini Seattle. We're just outside of Ithaca where Cornell College and Ithaca College is. and So it's just a bleak area in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but we're happy to be there. And God has us there. And we love ministering to the folks there. Uh, be in prayer. I got a call last night, a, a lady in our church who is a snowbird, um, who's really not that old. She had um, passed away unexpectedly, and so her husband, Ed, and her uh, daughter, Nancy, neither one are believers. So if you think about it during this week, if you pray for them and myself as I uh, minister to them as we go back. But it's Palm Sunday, so we're going to do a Palm Sunday message, and of course all the narratives uh, speak about it. I chose to um, turn to Matthew 21. That's where we're going to be today for the most part. Verses 1 through 11. There was this uh, man, and he's walking through a forest, and he's pondering life. And he walks, and he ponders, and he walks, and he ponders. And the more he did that, the closer he felt to nature. And in his own mind, he felt even closer to God. He felt so close to God, in fact, that he thought, you know, if I spoke, I bet he would listen. And so he said, God, are you listening? And God replied, yep, I'm right here. The man stopped and he pondered some more and he looked towards the sky and he said, God, I was just wondering, what's a million years to you? And God replied, well, I guess you could say a second to me is like a million years to you. And so the man thought about that and he continued to walk and ponder some more and he looked to the sky again, and he said, God, what is a a million dollars to you? And God said, well, a penny to me is probably like a million dollars to you. It means almost nothing to me. It really doesn't even have any value to me. And so the man looked, and he pondered a little bit more and walked, looked up to the sky, and said, God, can I have a million dollars then? And God said, sure, just give me a second. When I think about Palm Sunday, I think of how God's people Israel really just got their timing wrong. Our, our time doesn't really 
uh, involve God's timing all the time. And, and that's really what we see with what we call the triumphal entry, or what folks call the triumphal entry. God came to this earth in, in the flesh. Jesus Christ came to his people, and yet as a nation they failed to recognize him for who he truly was and why he came. In fact, they completely flat out rejected him as their Messiah, the one that God specifically promised all through the Old Testament that he would send to his people. And this moment was that moment. This promise had gone all the way back to Genesis 3.15. At the very moment that man sinned, God introduced the hope of this one who was to come, the seed that was to be born of a woman. Now, as a boy, I grew up here, I grew up on Ken Island uh, all my life. I consider myself a Ken Islander, not a New Yorker. And I looked forward to Palm Sunday. We went to a church. I wasn't a believer. The very few people I think at the church were. I grew up Episcopalian, as I said. And Palm Sunday was sort of a different Sunday. Every Sunday was always the same there. But on Palm Sunday, instead of just normally walking into the sanctuary, we would do something special. The church would take palms and they would march around the outside of the church and then eventually together we would make our way inside. And one of the things when we first got there that I would do is as soon as we got out of the car, I would make a beeline to the fellowship hall because that's where they kept the palms. They had the tables laid out and they had all the palms. And, you know, you could pick your own palm and it was yours for as long as you could keep it um, uh, flexible, I guess. And I took my time picking out the palm. You would have thought it was something really special. And the reason I did so was because I didn't really care about the religious significance. What I cared about was after church, uh, that palm would become likened to a sword. All the boys would pick their palms and we would decide which one could inflict the most harm. And so you'd you'd look for the sharp edges hoping to produce some sort of uh, nick cut or, or if you got really lucky blood. And so Palm Sunday was something really special, but I really had no idea the significance of it other, other than looking forward to the palm fight following the service. And so a lot of people celebrate, not just in the United States, but worldwide today, and they're marching with palms or they're doing something different. But what is the significance of this Sunday? Let's begin and look at the first five verses of Matthew 21. Let's read this together. It says this, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the full of a donkey. Six days from this particular moment, Jesus was going to experience the worst pain that any individual could ever fathom. The word crucifixion comes from that word excruciating for a reason. The punishment of crucifixion was administered by a Roman force well-trained to keep someone alive long enough to experience the maximum amount of pain so that they would still be cognitive. Physically, the participants were pushed to the very edge of death and they were just kept there. But that wasn't the only pain that awaited Jesus. 
on top of the physical pain, he would have loved one, those that he poured his life into who would abandon him and betray him. And if all that wasn't bad enough, his own father, who he has been with for all eternity, passed for the first time, would turn his back on him as he literally became the sin of the world and endured his father's wrath. This ride into Jerusalem was the beginning to an extremely painful end, one that Jesus, in his omniscience, knew awaited him. And this road to Jerusalem, however, for him, it was a very familiar road. On this road, Jesus had traveled several times to go to these festivals that would happen annually, seven feasts. He always traveled. We know even as a boy, there's very little information in the gospel narratives, but we know as a boy, as a baby, his parents made sure to take him on this road to the very city. Now, my family and I, we would go to Ocean City, Maryland every single year. We, we had a place down there at one point. And that two-hour drive when I was little, it seemed like forever. And, you know, we weren't like the kids today. We didn't have video games and, you know, the electronics and DVDs. If you wanted to, um, you know, entertain yourself, you'd either hit your sister for a while and you'd, you'd play that game where one punch at a time and don't hit my face and stuff like that. And then you would, uh, you, you know, maybe you would do the magnetic carry guy and, and so forth. But the one thing I liked is I, I always had these landmarks that I looked forward to. I, I knew when I was getting to Cambridge, I was getting closer. And if you're from the Eastern Shore, you remember they used to have that paddle wheel that they turned into an antique store. And I loved seeing that and going across the chop tank. And then I used to actually go through uh, um, Trap, I think it is, the place right past Cambridge instead of bypassing it. And then when you got to, um, got close to Salisbury, this guy on the left would cut his shrubs into furniture, you know, it looked like a couch outside. And then you didn't bypass Salisbury, so you went right past the Purdue plant, and you could, you could smell the chicken, but it, it wasn't a good smell like I, like I have. And then eventually you got close to Ocean City, you see the Frontier signs and the TP that's there, and then the go-karts, you were money. Well, you know... Jesus had taken this very road to Jerusalem several times before this triumphal entry. He, he knew those landmarks. He traveled it, and it brought back good memories. But this time it was going to be different. This time there wasn't that excitement necessarily. But the familiarity and expectation was there. Passover was a really exciting time for Israel. It was a time of remembrance and renewal. This last journey of nostalgic memories for Christ would be intermingled with some omniscient fear to what he was about to put his body through because he loved you and he loved me. It's something that his father had set up long before this time as Luke will write in Acts, before the foundations of the world, God had already foreordained these things, he says, in both Acts 2 and in Acts 4. And we see this particular journey prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. Here's what the prophet says, and Matthew quotes here. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophet Isaiah mentions this exact prophecy also in his book in Isaiah 62, 11. Up until this point, Jesus probably traveled this road at least 32 times by foot. This time, however, he wasn't 
going to go in by foot, but rather he was going to ride in on this donkey. Particularly, it points out that it was a donkey that had never been ridden before. Why was that? Why a donkey that had never been ridden? What is the significance? Well, the first thing is, it was symbolic that the rider was a king, though he wasn't a conquering king. Entering the city on a donkey's colt was a simple way to symbolize the truth that Jesus did in fact come as a king. He accepts the title. He accepts the people's praise. Oh, back earlier, years prior, he would tell people to hide. He'd tell his disciples to hide the fact of who he was. But here he doesn't say for them to hide it. He remembered that when Solomon became king after David, that he too, Solomon, rode his father's favorite mule during the inaugural procession into the royal city of Jerusalem. We see that in 1 Kings. But now a far greater son of David rides into Jerusalem, ready to fulfill a promise that was made a long time ago. Jesus, while he was a king, did not come into Jerusalem as a conquering king, a victorious king, because a conquering king would have typically ridden into the city on a fearsome war horse or on a gilded chariot, but Jesus rode on the back of this donkey. So while he accepted the title king, he refused to become that military Messiah that the people, even his own disciples, desired and made him out to be. Israel had always known that one day a Messiah would come on this very pathway. The disciples knew exactly where this would take place. And they also knew that this Messiah was going to come through the same road and defeat Israel's enemy and set up that promised kingdom that God had always claimed through the prophets, that they would rule forever through this Messiah. And that Messiah was Jesus Christ, but he had a much more important role to fulfill first. Israel just got the timing wrong. The second significance to him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is that it was symbolic that the rider had a sacred purpose. Jesus had specified, as I said, that the donkey was to be a young colt that had never been ridden. And that suggests a sacred aspect of his journey to Jerusalem. Because only animals that had never been used as a beast of burden could be considered suitable for sacred or sacrificial purposes. So Jesus is not only a king, he's a divine king. The detail of this donkey points out that this is not a political occasion, but rather a sacred and spiritual one. This would not be an ordinary ride. And the third point I want to make concerning this donkey is this. It's interesting as we look in Exodus 13 that a lamb was needed in order to redeem a donkey when it came to Old Testament law. Exodus 13, 13 says this, Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. It's much more than ironic to me that this sacrificial donkey now carries a lamb that would be used not only to redeem it physically, so to speak, but this lamb would redeem spiritually the entire world. Jesus had constantly reminded people that he didn't come to condemn the law. He didn't come to condemn the prophets. He came to fulfill all these things. This Palm Sunday was about to begin the start of many messianic prophecies that were going to be fulfilled in this week that lay ahead. Within just a short period of time, 
all of the prophecies and promises concerning a Savior and the first coming of Jesus Christ was going to be fulfilled and unfold before their very eyes. However, while Jesus was on this road or path entering Jerusalem to become a spiritual Savior, the people desired to do much more with him. They saw him differently. They missed time what he was there for. And so they wanted to make him a physical conquering king to do away with their enemies. Look at verses 6 through 9 as we continue in Matthew. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey in the cold and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Imagine what the disciples must have been thinking at this point. As they approached the city, they thought they knew who Christ was in the sense of what he was going to do at that point. They look across that Kidron Valley at that shining city of Jerusalem and they watch Jesus prepare this man that they followed who they knew was the Messiah climb on the back of this donkey. Boy, a string of excitement must have built in their hearts. They probably all had the hope that the time had come, the kingdom is here. Peter had long recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. The most assuredly thought that the king of Israel was about to take the Davidic throne. And this is what all the people thought as well in the crowd that day. How do we know this? What are the clues that they acknowledge him as that prophesied king? Well, there's a few. The first is that they laid cloaks down for him. The disciples initially laid their cloaks over the seat of the donkey, and then the crowd also laid their cloaks down on the street. This stressed a specific purpose because in Old Testament times, in order to show respect for a king, people would lay down their clothes for the king to walk on. The people that did this in the Old Testament with Jehu, Jehu was anointed the king of Israel, and in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, here's what we read. Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and what did they do? Each man took his garment and placed it under him on their bare steps and blew the trumpet saying Jehu is king this was a well-known sign in Israel that symbolized respect for and acceptance of a new king the people were participating in, in just simply tradition here they recognized Christ as the king a second sign that they saw him as a king was that they took these palms they cut them down and they laid them before him The last time that Israel had been independent before this moment in history was a hundred years prior to this when Judas Maccabeus had led them to victory and he became their king. His nickname was the Hammer and he adopted the palm branch as a symbol of his victory. He put the image of the palm branch on his coins and had used them in a temple feast to celebrate the victory over Rome at the time. And so when the crowd rushed to get palm branches for this occasion, it was not just because they were readily available, though they were, it was because of what they symbolized. And I'm sure that the people thought that perhaps a new revolt was going to happen now that this guy who's doing all the messianic uh, miracles, he's coming in exactly like the prophet said, and now it's time. We're finally going to get what we have coming, and yet their timing is off. The third thing is this. They lauded him with 
traditional praises of a king. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who Zanna in the, high, the highest, the word Hosanna, is a Latinized transliteration of a Hebrew phrase that means please save or help. It occurs in Psalm 118.25 just before the other phrases that are used here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Both of these quotations were used in the liturgy of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles when the people would commonly, commonly wave branches in the air and pray for God's help. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was a very popular greeting that they would share between pilgrimages on their way to Jerusalem for these festivals. And here it's adapted to pronounce a blessing on this king who they assume comes in the name of the Lord. And he did, but again, they got the timing wrong. And it's ironic because as Jesus rides through this crowd of his people Israel, as one thinks back on Israel's constant disobedience as a nation towards God. This nation that had God as their king, and yet, if you remember, they desired a different king. God wanted to be their king. God wanted to lead them. And they went to Samuel and they said, you know, can can we have a, a human king? Can we have somebody different? And Samuel pleaded with them. And eventually Samuel talks to God and they end up with Saul. And here it is once again, years years later they once again reject the man that God had sent to them and lead them in the way that God was going to lead them and this time it was his one and only son as God in the flesh now rides on this wild animal that was never ridden this animal that symbolizes the submission of an unbroken animal to its master and yet in contrast you see the stubbornness represented of those that cheered never in their history could they be completely broken these people that shouted out hosanna on this particular day soon they were going to cry out crucify him by the week's end their excitement towards christ will last about as long as the vibrant green on the cut palm branches why well, look at their response. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. There's only one recorded question in Scripture that was being asked by many that day in the crowd. At that scene where they're gathered, if you go to any scene where a bunch of people are gathered, usually you ask what is happening. And everybody knew something was happening. There was an excitement that was generated, but it was specifically because of this man on a colt. And so the question being put forth was, who is that man? Who is this? It's a question that each individual must ask his or herself today. You read about Jesus. You see things about Jesus. You see people excited about Jesus. You see people even condemn him or reject him. But in the midst of a frenzied crowd, the most important of all questions is who do you say Jesus is? It's a crucial question. Who is Jesus? The apostles were once talking this over, if you remember, and Christ looks directly at them and he says, I don't care what other people say, even though he just had asked them, who do, people, who do the crowd say I am? He looks at them and says, who do you guys say I am? And I ask you the same question. Who, who is Jesus to you? You know, he was many different things to many different people, all religious people in the crowd at the day. They were religious. They were there for the festival. And likewise, there are many 
religious people today. There are many religions, all who in some ways claim Jesus, and they claim different things about Jesus. But know this, apart from truth, what you and I believe about him is pretty pointless and powerless. So notice how the crowd answers. They said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What does this response indicate? Well, at the very least, they failed to recognize fully who he was. They understood something about his humanity, and yet they were clueless in relation to his deity. They recognized him as a man. They recognized him as a prophet, and they recognized him as an earthly king, but they did not recognize him as their Savior or their Messiah, the one that was sent from God. God said to Israel, here is your king. And once again as a nation, they say back to God, no thanks. Again, their timing was off. How do we know this? Well, look at Luke 19, 41 and 42. Luke adds this to the account of the triumphal entry. He says, as he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and he said this. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. You see, the people that day were looking for a king. They were looking for a king who would take care of their physical situations. They were looking for a king that would serve their self-centered needs. They were looking for a king that was going to take care of their enemies, the physical things they couldn't take care of. Much like their ancestors of old, they just wanted a king so that they could have this national and personal instant gratification. It was a very self-centered, innate endeavor. They wanted their own time in their own way, not God's. See, God had a plan in his own time. In the early days of Israel, God's plan was he was going to be their king. But they rejected that. And on this day... Jesus was going to be their king, but this would be a king that first had to face a cross. And because Israel had something different in mind, they once again on this day reject God. They saw him as an expedient political king. They saw him as a man. They saw him as a prophet, but they did not see him as their savior or as their Lord. These people thought they needed salvation from their enemies when the reality was the most important thing that they could be saved from was their own personal sins. And so when Jesus did not become the God that they wanted him to be, they quickly traded in their shouts of Hosanna for shouts of crucify him. He's not serving any purpose for us. He might as well kill him. They waved their clenched fists instead of palms. You see, when Peter was asked by Jesus, who do you say I am? Peter had a different response. And he literally just says one word in the Greek. He just says Christos, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, blessed one, chosen one. Whereas the rejection of Israel caused Jesus sadness as he wept over the city that day, the response of Peter caused him great joy when he said that. He said to Peter, that statement you just made, he said, I'm going to build a church on those that recognize the same thing, on those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus came first as a Savior, as a suffering servant. However, the day will come. There is going to be that day when he does ride in on a horse as a victorious king. It's just a matter of God's timing. Israel got the timing wrong, and so the truth was hidden from their eyes. And that's, it's really a sad thing. Paul details this blindness. He details this very moment when Jesus says this in Romans eleven seven eight. 7, 8. If you look at Romans eleven seven eight. 7, 8, 
Paul writes this. He says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, this is through their religious endeavors, they did not obtain the elect among them, that remnant, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they could not see and ears that they could not hear to this very day. What a sad statement. As Paul says, though Israel as a nation is blind, praise God there's still a remnant those Jewish individuals who would recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their personal Savior. And it was through the nation's rejection that salvation came to the Gentiles. Not that there wasn't Gentiles saved in the Old Testament because there there were many. Paul does go on to say that sometime in the future, after the fullness of the Gentiles, which I believe is probably at that moment the rapture takes place, that God is going to turn his attention back to Israel through that time of tribulation and the millennial kingdom. And he says this further down in verse 25 of Romans 11. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part, going back to that blindness, and then he says, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. See, God's time is everything. The blindness that Jesus spoke of, that, that Paul details here in Romans, is just temporary. We know from Scripture that the next time Jesus comes into Israel, it will be on a horse, not a donkey. And it will be as a conquering, victorious king. They're going to see him on that day as they always expected. And he is going to defeat their enemies on that day. And as a nation, those who are left after that horrible period of time through the tribulation, they will repent and they will turn to him. Which is why Paul will go on to say in verse 26 that all Israel will be saved. And given the times we live in, who knows? It may be sooner than we think. The Battle of Waterloo, which is one of the most famous battles in history, occurred on the mainland of Europe in June 18, 1815. It pitted the French army commanded by Napoleon Bonaparte against the Anglo-German-Dutch forces led by the Duke of Wellington and the Prussian forces who were commanded by General Gephard Blucher. Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo ended the 12-year period of wars known as the Napoleonic Wars. There's an interesting story about how the news about Waterloo reached England. News about the English victory was carried first by a ship that sailed from Europe all the way across the English Channel to England's southern coast. The news was then relayed from the coast by these signal flags. When the report was received at Winchester signalers with flags on top of the Winchester Cathedral began to spell out Wellington's defeat to defeat of Napoleon to the entire city. It said Wellington defeated. However, right before the message could be completed, a heavy fog moved in. The rest of the message was hidden from England. Based on incomplete information, the citizens of England thought that Napoleon had won. And that would have been a devastating defeat for England. So gloom filled the nation as the bad news quickly began to spread everywhere. But then the mist finally began to lift. The flags high up on the Winston Cathedral completed the news. The flag spelled out this triumphal message. Wellington defeated the enemy. The message of defeat was changed into one of victory. And so joy immediately replaced the gloom. All over England, people danced in the streets and they rejoiced. 
On this day of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, God's people Israel failed to see the full message of what God had done for them. They wanted instant victory, instant gratification. They wanted it done their way, not God's. They wanted their time and not his. And so as a result, this truth was hidden from the nation's eyes as God sent this spiritual fog or stupor to hide this great truth of victory from many. Praise God that many individuals in Israel see this truth today. But the fog on the nation is still in place as evidenced by their lack of faithfulness to God. You know, out of the eight and a half million people who live in Israel today, only 2% of the population claim to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. But praise God for that 2%. Peter understood who Jesus was, even though he did not know all the details and the fullness of time. He just knew that in the end, Christ would win. He knew that he was the Messiah and the Savior. He knew that he was the one sent from God. He lived to see the fall cleared, and it changed his life forever. Peter went from denying Christ three times to giving his own life as he would watch his wife put to death before him, right before he would ask to be hung upside down on a cross as not to mimic the death of his Savior. The lesson of the triumphal entry is many, but first thing I want to say is it's a reminder of an important personal consideration, really one that's life-changing, and that's this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he to you personally? How does his life and his death and his resurrection affect you? Is he just a good man? Is he just some prophet or teacher, or is he your savior? How you respond to him affects your eternity. second thing that we see is this. God's timing is really all that matters because that's, that's what's going to happen anyway. So are you willing to wait on him for your victory? Are you willing to yield to his will while you forsake your own will? Too many of us, myself included, are way too self-centered. You know, we desire God to do what we want him to do for us personally as though he's there to serve us. We're, we're as excited as that crowd when we think of the different ways that he can benefit us. We cheer for him, we worship him, but what happens when the time presses on and he doesn't work in your life the way you wanted him to, the way you expected him to, the way you desired him to? Then what? Will you turn away from him as quickly as those in the crowd as he becomes useless to serve your purpose? Can you say, not my time in, Lord, but yours, not my will, Lord, but yours? As we turn to the last book in the Bible, which I know... Larry had preached through. We do see a triumphal entry in that book. If you remember Revelation 7 9, here's an here's a image that we see. John's looking and he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. Will you be there on that day? Will you repent and trust in the salvation that Jesus has provided for you? If you do, the Bible says that your sins, though they're like scarlet, will be made white as snow. If you have never trusted him, know know this, that your timing is important. And today is your time. Today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you cross over from spiritual death to spiritual life. The nails did not hold Jesus on the cross. His incredible love for you did. Come to him just as you are right now so that on the day you breathe your last, 
you too will be a part of that most triumphal entry as you run into the arms of your loving Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day that we celebrate. There's a lot of religions that that celebrate this day, and Lord, they they miss it in a way that Israel did. They, They like the fact that you're doing something for them. They like the fact that they can have victory in you. A lot of people don't like the fact that they have to relinquish their will. They don't like the fact that they have to wait on you, that, Lord, it's about you. It's about your time, and it's about your sovereignty and not ours. Father God, help us to get to know who you truly are. Help us to get into your word and read your truth so that, Lord, we're not misled. Lord, help us to just desire the things that you desire. Your son said that the reason he came into this world was to do the will of his Father. Lord, may our hearts be led the same way. May that be our first desire. Father, thank you for those of us that are believers that that this does represent a triumphal entry because we understood, like Isaiah says in chapter 53, Christ first came to be that suffering servant. He came to be beaten and mocked and crucified and die on the cross for our sins. But we praise you that the story doesn't end there. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the victory, knowing that he took the wrath upon the cross that was ours. And, Lord, he imputed that righteousness to us so that when you see us in that day, it's not what we've done, but it's what he's already done. Thank you that we can rest in that. Lord, help us to serve you, understanding what we have gained. Help us to love you through our deeds. We just give you praise and glory for this day. And, Father, direct our hearts as we move towards Easter, understanding what a glorious salvation we have in you give you all praise and glory in Jesus name. Amen.